This is Dr. Daniel Fine speaking for the American Thoracic Society's Critical Care Assembly. I currently am a pulmonary and critical care doctor at Montefiore Medical Center and a faculty member at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Today I'm going to speak to Dr. Matt Semler about some exciting work that he's doing that I believe is helping us better take care of our critically ill patients. We're going to first speak about Matt's career trajectory, then what kind of research he's currently doing, and then get into the study itself that he recently did to try and answer some questions regarding how to best intubate critically ill adults. We will not only discuss some of his findings, but also some specifics of why he designed the study the way he did, and some challenges of doing research on very sick patients in real time. The paper that Dr. Semler wrote with his colleagues was published in the October issue of CHEST and is called A Multicenter Randomized Trial of Ramp Position versus Snipping Position During the Endotracheal Intubation of Critically Ill Adults. The bottom line of this study is that the ramp position did not improve oxygenation during intubation and was associated with a worsened glottic view during the procedure. We will get into the specifics of the study and how to apply the findings of the paper in my conversation with Matt. So first, Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Glad to be here. Yeah, congratulations on your publication. I found it exciting and very interesting, so I'm looking forward to talking about it. Good. I'm glad someone did. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, tell me a little bit about yourself in general. Uh, where are you from and uh, where are you trained and what you're up to now? So I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. and uh, was there through, I went to UVA, University of Virginia for undergrad and then med school and then couples matched with my wife who does emergency medicine uh, down to Vanderbilt in Nashville and was here for internal medicine and then pulmonary and critical care and then my, a master's of science in clinical investigation and I'm now in my second year on faculty here and uh, I've kind of gotten stuck in Nashville. All right, great. It must not be that bad, both the institution yeah. and the city, if if you hung <laughs> yeah, around. You like it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me just actually a little bit about that master's you did? Would you recommend it for, for other clinicians um, interested in research or even if you just do research peripherally? Yeah, so I I went back and forth and back and forth on whether or not to do that. I was a fellow, I'd been a chief here, so I'd been in training a long time, and I was pretty eager to be done with training. And I wasn't sure, you know, there's some people who know out of the gate they're going to be a basic scientist. This is what they dedicated their life to. I thought I'd be a clinician educator, most likely, and would this really be useful? And my mentor, Todd Rice, had done it and had clearly learned a lot from it. And so I, I went in and committed to two years and did it and found it just it was a phenomenal way to understand <clears throat> a lot of the decisions we make in medical practice, how to read an article, how to apply evidence to uh, your, your clinical practice. And it let me see how, you know, research wasn't necessarily something for other people. It was something where there's I could the things I'd been interested in when I was taking care of patients in the ICU. I could see how you could study those, um, and kind of changed my perspective on what clinical research was. And so I think, in part due to that program, I'm at least for the time being a physician scientist doing clinical trials and clinical research, which is not what I had anticipated on the front end. So I'd really recommend it. I think if you wanted to do if you want to be funded by the NIH and do clinical research, that some an MSCR or MSCI is probably mm. a necessity. But you know, some of our collaborators, Dave Jans at Louisiana State University, did that program, and it enables him to do more of a 50-50 split. That it would be very challenging to do 
if you didn't have that, because you have to do a lot of the work yourself, and he's able to do it because of that training. Mm-hmm. I'd say for young investigators, it's t- yeah, and this is someone who I did not want to do any more training, but it was time well mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it sounds really worthwhile. And then it, it sounds like it led to you being involved in this pragmatic critical care research group, which which sounds really appealing. Could you tell me just a little bit more about that group and your involvement with it? Yeah, well, that's it's it, uh, it is what it sounds, or at least we're intending it for it to be. So through um, uh, my mentor Todd Rice, through my kind of old, older brother mentor Dave Jans, who I just mentioned, who was a couple of years ahead of me in training and was kind of a young attending as we were started, we recognized that there were areas of critical care medicine where we had very practical questions that you would run into literally daily in the ICU choice of crystalloid approach to endotracheal intubation, uh, you know, dose of fluid and sepsis, all of these things were very, very common questions. <clears throat> that um, maybe the use of pragmatic research or research that's a little bit more closer to clinical practice and a little less focused on mechanism and more on what clinicians should do, uh, that developing a program of that might be able to answer some of those questions. So um, it's now expanded pretty considerably. So these studies like the one we're talking about today, happen at uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham and UW in Seattle, and we're working with Leahy Clinic in Boston and all of these sites across the country. But it started just with this idea that you didn't, to answer important clinical questions about the things you were doing every day in the ICU didn't necessarily require an NIH grant for, you know, $8 million, maybe just interested hardworking people who, you know, have important clinical questions could make some progress on that. So that was the idea of it. And we've uh, been lucky enough to kind of do a series of these these studies, mostly on airway management and fluid management. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it sounds great. It's just like you said, all the kind of questions that come up constantly in clinical practice for a critical care doctor. So to be able to answer those questions directly is really appealing. Right. No, it's fun. It, it it also makes me very much more attuned in my practice to the things that if two people are doing things differently and we don't know why, that sets off an alarm bell for me. <laughs> yeah. 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 Where, where is the evidence to do A or B? Right. Yeah. 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 So so this study in particular, um, how, how did this clinical question come up and um, how is it driven forward into, uh, you know, where we are today? So this started out of um, our first trial, uh, the, the fellow trial looked at airway management, and the two questions it looked at were video laryngoscopy versus direct laryngoscopy and apneic oxygenation versus usual care. And that those two questions, we were interested just because <laughs> my wife's emergency medicine, they all do apneic oxygenation. All of the ICU people that we worked with, or a lot of them hadn't heard of it, and I was very convinced that worked. And so we got into that trial, and as we were doing that, turning the magnifying glass on our practice of innovation made me realize, us realize how many things, basically any aspect of innovation that you uh, ask about, people have strong opinions and outside of the operating room, almost no data. There's some small exceptions to that. But so we, we kind of walked into a data vacuum and it's a you know, our group here has been a clinical trials group and it thinks of things through that mindset. So I, we basically came out of the fellow study and said, you know, while we were doing the fellow study, we recognized these five or six other things that 
uh, everybody does differently. There's no data on people have very strong opinions. Let's pick a couple more of those and keep working. And this ramp position versus this sniffing position was, again, a big thing that uh, one of our uh, collaborators here in Jaffe at UW had thought a lot about. And um, Rich Levitan, who's an uh, expert of an airway management in the emergency medicine community, was talking a lot about. And there was reasonable, there is reasonable preliminary data from the operating room. And so this seemed at a perfect point. I was using the ramp position primarily uh, Todd and some of our other collaborators were skeptical, and so it seemed to fit that niche of provider practice variation, no data in this context, and um, we already had the infrastructure in place from the fellow trial, so we just kind of plugged this study in next to get going. I really, part of what appealed to me about this study is that I'm obviously pulmonary critical care and the idea of doing a study where you're modifying functional residual capacity to improve, you know, denitrogenation and your oxygen reserve, I really kind of was drawn to that aspect of the question. Yeah, so the physiology of it also is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gotcha. So so what exactly um, did you guys do? What did you look at? Tell me a little bit about the population and the intervention and then the outcomes. Yeah, so what we set out to study and what we designed was to look at um, critically ill adults undergoing endotracheal inhibition in the ICU um, and so we defined our study population. You mentioned the pragmatic focus of these. The idea is the people you're actually innovating in practice. So the only people we excluded, the only patients who were undergoing endotracheal innovation who were excluded were those who were not undergoing r- rapid sequence. That is to say, there was some uh, alternative plan like awake innovation. Patients who were too urgent to enroll in research like a cardiac arrest or respiratory arrest who I think are people who, at least for me, I'm not ramping patients experiencing cardiac arrest. Right. And then the third is really key, and this is true probably of all clinical trials, but we try and be really explicit about this, is the only the third exclusion is those who you you have to do one of the positions like you already know. so for this study cervical instability we were not going to force people to do the ramped position right. in yeah. those patients and and so but that's it so I think mm-hmm. compared to trial you know a lot of the ARDS trials we're involved with where you screen ten patients to get one in the trial you know this is basically the idea is everyone so that's the study population. The interventions, we spent a lot of time talking about how to define these. So the basic group Mm -hmm. of patients were randomized to ramped position or sniffing position. And our goal is to define those exactly as they've been defined in prior studies. And the more we looked at the prior studies, the more variability in how those had been defined previously. Sniffing position, the control group, was easier. We used the definition um, that has been pretty standard in textbooks, which is to say torso supine, shoulders on the bed, um, and then the neck at 35-degree flexion, head at 15-degree extension, mm-hmm. um, with a goal of being you know, six or seven centimeters off the bed. And so that, I think, has been the standard comparator in all, basically all of the ramp positioning versus sniffing position trials in the operating room. The ramp position had been achieved a couple different ways um, in the studies in the operating room, and there's actually even a study comparing the different ways of achieving ramp position. Something between 25, 20 and 30 degrees was used in most of the studies, and so we picked 25 degrees. And when I say 25 degrees, I mean that the head of the bed was elevated, so the patient's torso and shoulders were 25 degrees off of the horizontal 
And in some of those studies that had been done with the bed, some of those studies that had been done with ramping, we and there's a study showing those two are equivalent. And so we chose to use the bed to do it because we figured that was the most consistent. All the beds have electronic controls, and you can type in 25, enter, and it puts the patient at that, which is probably a lot more reproducible than um, the blankets and towels approach. And then I think an important part, which I should have made clearer, I think, in the article, it's in the supplement, is that the patients in the ramp position, their head was... um, position using towels and blankets to achieve ear to sternal notch positioning. So we had a written description of that. We had pictures from online publications, from textbooks available to the operator every time. The whole idea of this was just to replicate what had been done in the other studies by providing the same materials, pictures, descriptions of ramped position in in the studies in the operating room. And, and observational studies outside the operating room, and then sniffing position. <clears throat> so that it, it was a simple interventions in that it was just have the patient in the assigned position at the time of induction and time of first laryngoscopy. All other aspects of the procedure are deferred to the treating team. Right, right. Let, let me just ask you to clarify one thing. You said in the ramp position they had their ear to the, to the sternal notch as well? Yeah, so I, I that was originally in the text of the paper. It's in the supplement still. So the the idea was to separate the uh, torso elevation and shoulder elevation, right? So 25 degrees versus zero degrees. But the you know in most of the prior studies in the operating room and the recommendations for outside of the operating room, those uh, you you want their head and ear to sternal notch positioning even in the ramped position. And so that was allowed and recommended was to, right. once the bed was elevated, to still get their head and neck in a uh, in the position that theoretically is optimizing alignment and, and grade of view. That okay. may be easier said than done, as we, I think, learned on the back end. But that's right. certainly the intent of that position. That's the instructions that were provided and, the, you know, the pictures and that sort of thing. We, we were just using materials that had been uh, you know, provide, provided to operators or produced as part of re- mm-hmm. expert recommendations. So tell me a little bit about the primary outcome. So you guys picked lowest oxygen saturation. Um, how, how did that come about that you picked it? Yeah, yeah. So our primary outcome, as you said, lowest ox- lowest arterial oxygen saturation measured by pulse oximetry between induction and two minutes after successful endotracheal tube placement. That's the outcome that has been used in the uh, largest and highest quality airway management studies outside the intensive care unit in which oxygenation was the focus, and particularly by Lard et al. study of non-invasive ventilation for pre-oxygenation. That's their outcome. And therefore, because it's been used, we have some sense of what a clinically meaningful difference in that might be, or at least the sense that others have used for research. So the reason we wanted to focus on oxygenation is it's the most common complication. Hypoxemia is the most common complication during airway management in the intensive care unit. It probably happens in 40% of patients, some degree of hypoxemia. And it seems to be the one most closely linked to cardiac arrest. That's probably debatable, but at least in the observational studies that have been done, this may have some, uh, the relationship to cardiac arrest and death may be stronger than for some of the other complications. And I think that's important because everything we're talking about here is surrogate outcomes, right? Ideally, right. 
you'd do a 10,000 patient trial and <laughs> all you'd ever study is one-year mortality and quality right. of life, right? right? But for airway management research, I don't think it's there yet. Yeah. You know, there have been some studies that are 400 patients or, you know, in that range. But outside the operating room, this is in its infancy. So by definition, you're, you're using a surrogate outcome. And your two options are probably lowest oxygen saturation or some dichotomized variable like sat less than 90, sat less than 80, sat less than 70. I think the the argument for the continuous variable is it's been used before. We kind of know what it means. Every, you know, a SAT of 96 is probably better than a SAT of 90. A SAT of 82 is probably better than a SAT of 75. And a SAT of 65 is probably better than a SAT of 59. You know, so there's, regardless of where you happen to be, higher is better. And if you cut that number up artificially, so let's say your outcome was SAT less than 80%, that means you believe a SAT of 81, or I'm sorry, SAT of 79 is more similar to a SAT of 50 than it is to 81, right? right? Yeah. You only have two categories. And so I I've struggle with it. We talk about this constantly. But we've always stuck with a continuous variable because no one can tell me what SAT cutoff makes physiologic sense and is linked to outcomes. And I don't like <laughs> lumping 79 and 50 together and, as, and having 81 be different from 79. Yeah. No, what would come up? Yeah. Go, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, for a 90-year-old patient, maybe a SAT of 70 is much less tolerated than a 40-year-old. So, you know, it's yeah, variable right. between are... patients as well. Yes, exactly. So at least using a continuous scale, you don't have to make that artificial decision. The one thing that I'll mention, if any, if people have read closely the operating room studies, they use an interesting outcome, almost all of them. The outcome they use is duration of apnea without desaturation, which takes a minute to think about. So the way those studies are done, a lot of them, they uh, put the patient in the desired position, they pre-oxygenate them, they intubate them, so the tube's in place, and then they disconnect the tube from everything and wait until they desaturate. Or, you know, their sat drops to 92%, and then they reconnect the tube. And I, so the more closely I read those studies, the less I, I think that's an outcome that has any relevance to critical yeah. care. Yeah, it probably you know not I mean? going to be studied by the pragmatic trials group. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to Yeah, because yeah. my question is, I'm going to innovate them as fast as I can. Can I prevent yeah, complications from happening during that? So I, I, I've gotten, I, I used to think about that, and maybe it informs some physiologic things in a really tough airway that's going to take a while. But that's a long way, for, a really long way from clinical practice. So that, that's yeah, how we've absolutely. got the lowest oxygen saturation. We keep reassessing whether we could, should be using something else, but I haven't been convinced yet. Yeah, yeah. You know, as you're talking about, the continuous variable. I could just imagine that although I could see exactly why you did that, it'd be harder to measure and collect, you know, the exact lowest saturation. So did you run into problems with collecting that data? Yeah, so this has been an interesting challenge for airway management, for us, for airway management research, because it happens very quickly. It's not like you can get a study nurse up there and, you know, so we've had to be very creative in, in how to collect any of this data, lowest saturation being included um, and I think this has been one of the fun parts for me is that 
the beauty of being clinicians doing clinical research is that we know the environment, know the resources, and we know the fact that there's usually a charge nurse or another physician around and that they are very good at measuring vital signs, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's been our approach for the most part is to have an independent observer, you know, either a physician or a nurse. We usually use the, the charge nurse and and have them not be involved in the procedure at all. Their whole goal is to watch the monitor because you can't trust the people doing the procedure to report it because they are thinking about other things. You know, yeah, that was one of the earliest lessons for us is that I didn't think anybody desaturated when I animated them until I had somebody <laughs> else watching and recording. Right. And and so that was our creative workaround, just to have somebody else watch who's trained to do that. We obviously want to make sure the quality of the data is high, and so we... We now have validated that in each of these studies in in a multitude of ways, one of which is we have a second observer. We sometimes have a primary investigator from the site sneak into the room and just watch uh, the SATs independently, and we give you the correlation between two observers. We have real-time telemetry now, and so we have the ability to validate. But the answer is nothing's done any better than the old-fashioned have the charge nurse watch the SAT. Right. Um, yeah. so that's how so it's, it's good you get buy-in from that part of your team, though, to, to be involved. Yeah, so with that's a data. huge, huge part of this is that the, these are not these are collaborative studies, right? So the, it's the fellow for us who's doing the procedures. So they have to want to be part of it. The attending who's letting you dictate part of their care or intervene, you know, they have to want to be part of it. The nurses have to be excited about this stuff. A lot of these therapies involve respiratory therapy who has to be on board. And so I think um, slowly building the community in which your ICU is committed to figuring out better ways of doing things, you know, through research is a huge investment. And um, I'm lucky in part because some of the, the uh, Art Wheeler and Gordon Bernard and some of the people who've done that in our ICU, we've seen a, such a cultural change, you know, when they did the low tidal volume trial and we're recruiting that for that here the nurses and respiratory therapists all hated the low tidal volume group mm-hmm. right? because if oxygenation was worse, they had more problems with desaturation. And to right. arrive at the end of that trial and have them, the group they were certain was worse, actually improve mortality, I think, change culture. So that's, that's been a huge part. These are not studies done by a physician researcher. These are done by a team. Right, right. Well, kudos to all of you for getting it done. So, so tell me a little bit about what you found. What, what's the bottom line of your study? And then after we can talk about what you take away from it and what we should all take away from it. Yeah. So the primary outcome, lowest oxygen saturation, was not different between groups. It was 92% in the sniffing position group, 93% in the ramped position group. And no matter how you sliced or diced the um, lowest oxygen saturation, less than 90, less than 80, it, it wasn't wasn't different. Um, the secondary outcomes, largely the kind of procedural outcomes, so the cormac lehane graded view, the um, time required for innovation, first-pass success, number of innovation attempts were all better in the sniffing position than in the ramped position, and that was certainly a surprise for, for me and for us. Um, I think my after spending a lot of time looking through the data and thinking about that, I think there are two 
we went into this knowing ramp position could affect endotracheal inhibition in two ways, one of which was improving functional residual capacity and uh, your oxygen reservoir and time to desaturation, and one of which was anatomic. You know, there had been studies in the operating room suggesting it improved your anatomic alignment, grade of view. Um, and so I think my take home from this is that probably ramp position is either neutral or maybe slightly positive in some of the physiological aspects having to do with oxygenation, but that getting the position, head position in particular, head and neck position right in a critically ill adult may be more challenging than it is in the sniffing position, and that I think resulted in some anatomic challenges of getting the grade of view and passing the endotracheal tube, um, and that those kind of factors, you know, countervailing factors may have resulted in no difference overall in oxygen saturation. Wow. Yeah, so this kind of flies in the face of some some work that's been done before, and also a lot of people's clinical experience, I think. You know, I've talked to a bunch of senior anesthesiologists about this, and senior critical care doctors, and people kind of swear by it. Ramping people, yeah. so it's yeah. interesting. So, ha- have no, you changed <laughs> your practice at all? And, and also, I'm interested: has your wife, the emergency medicine doctor, changed her practice? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I, I think of everything Bayesianly, right? So my pretest prior to this, I was using ramp position, but I did. I know there's no data for it outside the operating room, so I didn't feel that strongly about it. The exper- the data from the study. And the experience of supervising innovations during the study uh, pointed out to me that I think so. So there are patients for who I think would otherwise be a pretty inhib- easy innovation in the sniffing position, or you know, supine, who you can unintentionally screw up by putting in the ramp position. And so, fellow, there were fellows who loved the ramp position during the trial and were very eager to get that. And then I watched as they took a thin, pretty you know, uh, low uh, risk for difficult innovation patient and, you know, and struggled with it. And I think having thought about it a lot, the prior studies in the operating room, that operating room table is thin, it's hard, it's, uh, you know, you have a patient who's cooperative and can sit still. In the ICU, those the beds are very thick, they're soft, and so the patient ends up being considerably further away from the operator. Mm. And the patients, half of the patients or more are delirious. And so if, even if you get them in the position, by the time you're <laughs> using drugs, they're sliding out of position right. You know, right. from gravity and you know maybe they're vomiting. And so I... I so to me, I think the physiology of the ramp position probably is right and probably makes sense. The practical challenges of getting the head positioning correct and not shooting yourself in the foot have been enough that um, so for patients who I think have are likely are on BiPAP and hypoxemic, I, I may consider keeping them in the ramp position. For a lot of other patients, I think sniffing position simple. It's is something that you know. It's it's hard harder to screw up. I think um, so. That that's you know. There's some research I feel really strongly one way or the other about this study is the first data outside the operating room on this first trial outside the operating room and adds you know it's a randomized trial of 260 patients. It adds valuable data, but it just moves the needle as to where your pretest was. So. And I think it provides, especially the forest plot in figure four, 
I think suggests to me there may be some patients for whom the ramp position is better, those who it will be anatomically reasonable to do. And, and there may be there are a lot of patients for whom I'm encouraging the fellows to just keep it simple and do the sniffing position and uh, just be done with it. So that's right. been so my... there's no one-size-fits-all. This personalized medicine no. applies to patient <laughs> positioning during intubation as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think that might be right. It's hard to do personalized medicine with trials that are of this size, but I, I do think there's something to that. The one thing I'll say, I thought ramp position would be better for patients with higher body mass index. We found no trace of that. Um, and why that is, I, I couldn't tell you, but <clears throat> we looked very hard for that and really didn't see it. So, um, I, you know, I, I think being aware of the pluses and minuses of each position and when with this data you might think you would use each. I'll just bring up one thing that was brought up in the editorial regarding the use of uh, fellows and the idea that, well, these are mm. junior operators. They don't have as much experience. They, they're not experts. So can the data be fully applied? And this certainly, um, it goes along with your pragmatic approach that this is a real-world situation. You don't have always a an expert as the operator. But but how how do you take that um, limitation of the study and, and how could we apply it in the future? Yeah, I, it's funny. There are certain limitations that I really sweat over and certain that I don't. This was basically every patient at these four major academic centers being innovated by the people who actually innovate those patients. Yeah, right? no, exactly. You know, so I have I don't lose any sleep over a, a thousand year old anesthesiologist saying that these people were the wrong <laughs> innovators. This is who's actually doing it, right? Yeah, you know, no, is, exactly. If, exactly. If the day the study ended, these same people are innovating those same patients in those same ICUs. So right. I think it is true that everything has a context, and that the trials in the operating room frequently only had one operator who was a very experienced anesthesiologist or two operators who are very experienced. So I I do think the operator matters, but I'm not bothered by our studies, which use the operators who are actually innovating these patients and understanding the effect of the intervention in that operator population. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. Is there any last words you want to, you want to leave? with uh, the readers or the listeners? Yeah, so I think uh, what to conclude, I think my conclusion from this is what it always is, which is I'm glad we have some data on this. Let's get more data. And so for us, this study has provoked more ideas that, you know, this was factorialized with the checklist study, and one of the critiques people had of the checklist study was unlike a before-after checklist that had been done in Europe, which included administration of a fluid bolus and some other more invasive interventions. Ours didn't have those things. So now there's never been a trial of a fluid bolus to prevent post-innovation hypotension. We're doing one. So we're All right. in the midst of a 500-patient trial. At nice. Looking forward to it. Of that. You know, and so that idea of if if there's something that two people do differently, don't just uh, you know disagree about it and hold strongly to your opinion. Have enough equipoise to help push things forward. And and um, you know if people are interested in doing this, you know this is this is our hobby project. This is just what we do for fun. So reach out to us or do it yourself. You know I, I think there's no magic here, but I think. Every one of these studies we do, I'm happy we did it because it shines light into a dark area. I would like to thank Dr. Semler 
for joining me today. We discussed his recent publication, a multi-center randomized trial of ramp position for sniffing position during endotracheal intubation in critically ill adults, which recently appeared in chest. What I think are the take-home points of our conversation is that the ramp position in his study was not in itself better than the sniffing position for intubation of ICU patients, but that each may be beneficial in the right situation. This has been Dr. Daniel Fine speaking on behalf of the American Thoracic Society's Critical Care Assembly. Enjoy the rest of your day.